Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, and if you want to follow along on the sermon handout, you'll have an outline there. Two weeks ago, we saw uh, from chapter 10 how John was commissioned by this mighty angel, uh, which, which I believe represents a theophany, an appearance of Christ portrayed in his global dominion. Right? He had one foot on the land, one foot, on, one foot covering the ocean. It was as if he was saying, all of this is mine. And in that, he was giving John a recommission to proclaim the revelation of God's judgment. So in chapter 11, we transition from this personal commission given to John to a commission that's now given to the church. And we're talking about these witnesses that I believe represent the church. We'll specifically get to those uh, next week. We're just going to this, this morning look at verses 1 and 2. But that's the transition that's taking place here. So some scholars consider this passage, these two verses, in fact, to be the crux of the entire book of Revelation, because it forces us to pick a particular interpretive approach in order to understand and apply the text. That's true of every text, that you're following some hermeneutic, some interpretive approach. And yet this one, they say, is sort of the crux. You've you've got to make a decision. You can't be wishy-washy on it in order to really... Uh, make a decision, that will have an impact upon the way you read the rest of this book. And so I have argued that the, the primary goal of Revelation is to provide comfort to the people of God throughout this present age, between the first and second coming of Christ. It's, it's to provide comfort to us because of the hope of Christ's victory over every force of evil. That's, that's what we're seeing repeatedly in the book of Revelation, is being reminded of Christ's victory over evil. And in fact, I would say Christ's victory is being carried out even now in this present age, Um, even though there is still a a very real presence of opposition to his will. So that raises uh, an important concern. How can we be sure that Christ is victorious when we see his church facing periodic defeat? at least in, in individual instances, right? Of course, the, we know the church of, of Christ as a, as a whole, the, the universal church will never fail. The gates of hell cannot prevail against her. But we do see ongoing persecution. So you wonder, who's really in control? The primary comfort this passage offers to those asking that question is this. The people of God are never separated from the presence of God. Although this sermon will get technical and there's really no way around that, I do want you to remember that this passage is meant to convey that simple and comforting truth of God's eternal presence with his people. So before we read these verses, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding them. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this reminder that you are with us, that you are never apart from us, Lord, if you have sealed us for yourself, then we are yours, and you are always with us. So we thank you for that comforting truth. We pray that we would continue to reflect upon that, even as we dive into some, some deep truths here, some concepts that are even confusing that might leave us scratching our heads. Lord, help us to not get too far away 
from the reality that it is being presented here, that you are present, Lord, even now. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are softened to this truth that we might understand and respond in obedience, or that we might repent and believe, that we might be convicted by the truth, comforted by your gospel, and that we would go out praising your name. For you alone are worthy to receive it. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I, and this is John speaking, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, before we get into the details of this brief passage, uh, it'll be helpful to review those, some of those major interpretive approaches to Revelation. Uh, I, I gave you four, technically five, when we did the introduction, and if you want to go back and have a more detailed understanding of, of these things, then you'll have to go back to that introduction. But um, I just want to speak about three in particular that will will readdress as we work our way through the text. The first is the futurist approach. The futurist approach reads Revelation um, as an understanding that the vast majority of the book is describing future events, right? Events that will take place just prior to Christ's return. So it's right in the, in the word, right? Futurist, that's pre- pretty easy to understand. It's, it's future events even from our present day. Um, and the problem with this view, as I've said repeatedly, is, is trying to make sense of the, relevant, the relevance of these texts to every generation prior to the last one. And it's as if it's, it's really just preparing that last generation for these actual trials and tribulations. Everyone prior to that is sort of just trying to figure out the puzzle, right? But, it's, but, but, but I think that's unhelpful to think of it in that way, right? The other approach, or the second approach I want to point out, is the preterist approach. They believe that the vast majority of Revelation is describing past events, events that took place prior to the destruction of the temple, prior to and including the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And I've said repeatedly, and maybe this is not quite fair, but the idea is, is that the, really the challenge of this view is that you do have to understand what is trying to make sense of of how it relates to every generation following that first one, right? Of course, it makes sense to the original audience, the, the audience that was getting ready to go through that immediate tribulation, but what about us? How does it relate to the tribulation that we face today? Now, I, I, the reason why I say that's not completely fair is because that would make almost all of the Old Testament unrelatable to us, right? If, if, we, if we understood that the, the, every prophecy that's already found fulfillment is almost not relevant to us, that's, that's just not true. I'm not sure. The, the mic is, is, has been giving us some fits. We're probably going to have to order a new one, but we'll, we'll try it. I'd rather not hold the mic. Um, the third approach, and the, and the one that I... Um, tend to use more often is the idealist approach. It's less concerned with specific events, 
Rather, what they find being revealed in these visions is spiritual principles that are repeated throughout this age. It might be an actual event, but, the, but what's being conveyed by revelation is, is, a, um, is kind of a, a spiritual principle that we can see happening over and over again. Okay, and, and, and we'll make more sense of that as we work through this particular text. But let's see these various approaches within this passage. And if you're following along the outline, the first point I want to make is the promise of God's presence. The promise of God's presence. I'm going to go ahead and switch now. So I think in, in saying that this is about the promise of God's presence, I, I want you to understand that that pretty much everyone, regardless of your interpretive approach to Revelation, would agree that this passage is, first of all, speaking about God's presence, right? that that is what it's pointing to. The question is, what is, you know, that, that the temple represents God's presence, but the question is, what is the identity of this temple? Right, so futurists see a literal temple. Look at, at verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So they see here a literal temple that will exist in the future. Right? It's, that's what the futurists believe. They see a literal temple that will exist specifically on Mount Zion just prior to Christ's return. It could, be, it could exist there several years before his return, but it's going to happen at some point between now and his return. The problem with that is right now on that spot are two Muslim mosques, right? The temple of, uh, or the Dome of the Rock, I think is one of them, and Al-Asqa Mosque. Both of those mosques are in that location. So what dispensational futurists tend to say is that at some point God is going to orchestrate the overthrow of that kind of overthrow the Muslim stronghold in that region so that then a new temple can be can be built up and restored to use between now and Christ's return. Okay, so this uh, those who take this approach um, believe that will take place. Um, but the question, of course, is if this is a literal temple, um, what is its purpose? Because a literal temple prior to, you know, in this, even in, in this day and age, was not, it wasn't simply a place for the covenant community to gather, right? At the time of the original audience, the temple was used beyond that, right, to also practice the ceremonial law. The Levitical sacrificial system was taking place in the temple. And so a literal reading means that God is, once again, reestablishing the sacrificial system, something that has been very plainly and clearly abolished by the death of Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, and compare that with this idea and see how, how maybe the author of Hebrews would have responded to that, to that idea. So Joel Beakey says, God destroyed the temple in AD 70 precisely because the Jews rejected Jesus' atonement. So a rebuilt temple would merely reinforce that rejection. 
The idea of rebuilding the temple and reinstituting its sacrifices denies the sufficiency of Christ's atoning death. Plus, if you recall from John chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that the time would come when true worship would no longer depend upon a specific location. But genuine worship would be in spirit and in truth. It won't matter whether you're on that rock or this one, right? You can worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the idea that you would have to, or that an ethnic Jew would have to go back into, basically migrate to that region in order to begin worshiping and, and practicing the ceremonial law seems to be a backward step. So preterists, they likewise see a literal temple, a literal altar, as well as a literal outer court that's being described here. But of course, they see it as a past temple, the temple that was destroyed in AD 70. Okay, so, so one of the first challenges that this view has is that it requires the book to be written in the late 60s. And I'll bring up some other challenges that that raises, uh, or that, that, that this view has later on. But, but the idea that this book was written in the late 60s contradicts the earliest testimonies of the church that John wrote it in the mid-90s during the reign of Domitian. Okay. So that leads us to our third position, the idealists. They see this idea of the measuring of the temple and the altar and the worshipers as partially symbolizing the sealing of God's covenant people. Okay, the temple represents God's presence on earth, and those who are measured within the temple are the recipients of his love. The vision strongly implies symbolism, right? Because who could imagine John literally taking a rod and measuring the altar, the, the temple, and then all of the worshipers that are present? If you could imagine me taking a rod, no matter how large that rod is, and standing it up against every member of this congregation, that's going to take some time. Now imagine that taking place with the universal church, right? It's, it's implying symbolism very strongly. We don't, we don't expect that this took a, a very long time for John. In Ezekiel chapter 40, um, actually chapters 40 through 48, a man is seen measuring various parts of the temple. He is given a reed, and he measures the gates the courts, the inner chambers, the vestibules, and the altar, marking off what belongs to God. And then in, in later on in Revelation chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, John again alludes to that passage in Ezekiel. I believe this is alluding to that passage in Ezekiel. Later on, John alludes to that passage again because it's talking about measuring the temple. In both, Well, actually, in Revelation 21, it, it alludes to an angel that's measuring the new Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is this uh, in, incredible um, place that where it includes gates and walls. And he's, he's, um, the angel is given a rod. In Greek, it's kalamos. Okay? Um, and that's important because it's the same, use of, the same word that's used here in Revelation 11 for the rod that John is given, kalamos. So that's the, the connection there is, is this angel has a rod and he's giving the measurements of the New Jerusalem and the measurements cover 1,380 miles, right? It spans this great distance, this city, with walls that are towering 216 feet high. 
again, it's, it, it's, it's very symbolic of God's people in God's place. Um, and what's interesting about the Revelation 21 passage is, is that there he's measuring the New Jerusalem, and there isn't a temple to measure. There is a temple, but it's not physical. We read this in John, or Revelation 21, verse 22. John saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And of course, when we say that we are the people of God, we are the temple of God, we're using new covenant language that is consistent with that. We're saying we are united to Christ, who is the temple. So we are the temple, the people of God. So here in Revelation 11, John is given a rod to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. It specifically says he's to measure those who worship there. And that takes us back to the promise given to the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 12, where we read, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So in Revelation, the temple is depicted as this heavenly presence of God. In each of these passages where measurements are taking place, the repeated promise is that God's presence is always with his people, right? He's reminding them over and over again through each illustration that God's presence is with his people. And so in the New Testament, the temple is frequently used to represent the, the gathered people of God rather than a physical structure, rather than a building. So listen to these examples that Paul encouraged the Corinthians. He, he asked them this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. It says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. To the Ephesian believers, he says, you are a holy temple being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then similarly, Peter speaks of believers as living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in other words, the people of God have the promise that nothing can separate them from the presence of God. Right, and it's illustrated in our gathering together as his people. Um, Robert Bruce was a, a Scottish minister who died in, uh, in 1631. And on the day of his death, he ate an egg. And he really enjoyed it. And he asked his daughter, Martha, would you make me another egg? And of course, it's his dying wish. She's, she's going to do that. But then he hesitated. He said, no, it is not necessary he said, my master is calling me. Bring rather the Bible. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and place my finger on the portion that says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so she brings the Bible over. She places his finger on that part, and he says, is it there? And she says, yes. And he turns to her, and he says, now God be with you, my dear daughter. I have breakfasted 
I have breakfasted with you, but I shall have supper with my Lord Jesus Christ this night. Has the, the promise of God's presence ever given you a sense of peace where you would typically be very, very anxious? Have you ever experienced the, the promise of his presence in that way? Where you say, I, I should be shaking in my boots and yet I just I feel a peace about this. And what, what better time to feel that sense of peace than at his death? That's the gift of this promise of his presence. If you have been measured, if you've, another word might be if you've been numbered or if you've been sealed as the people of God, then you have the promise that you will never be separated from the presence of God. That's just as true right now as it will be for all eternity. And that is true whether you are experiencing a season of great and significant trials in your life or whether you're in a season of great triumph. God's presence is always with you. To be measured is to be counted as belonging to the covenant community, which offers, secondly, the promise of God's protection. And you're outlining the, the promise of God's protection. So once again, most readers, I believe, would understand this passage as promising the protection of believers. But what we need to understand is the kind of protection that's being offered. And that's where the interpretations differ. Right? Futurists see the promise of physical protection for ethnic Jews, for this Jewish remnant during the Great Tribulation. They believe the outer court is representative of unbelieving Gentiles who will persecute the Jews and trample the holy city. But that trampling, they believe, will only affect those who are outside of the temple, those who are, who are either false converts or, or not believers uh, to begin with, God's protection of those in the temple will last, they would say, for a literal 42 months. And again, that's, that's based upon verse 2, right? But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So they take all of that very literally as a future uh, event. Physical protection for this Jewish remnant. Preterist. It's the opposite, right? They see um, a past protection. But here's where I think the preterists are a little bit inconsistent because what they say is that this is not a physical preservation, but a spiritual protection, spiritual preservation of Jewish believers living in Jerusalem during Nero's persecution. Now, first of all, curiously, Nero's persecution of Christian never extended beyond Jerusalem. And in the very beginning of Revelation, the seven letters that were written to the churches were located in Asia Minor. And several of them were already experiencing persecution. So again, that, that, that points to a much later dating for the, for the book of Revelation. I, I, bear with me a little bit. There's, I know this is technical, but uh, more importantly than that, if this represents the literal temple in AD 70, then they have to understand this as a spiritual preservation because that literal temple was not protected, right? It was destroyed. It was literally destroyed. And so then the preservation or the protection of the people must be spiritualized because many of them were physically harmed in the destruction of Jerusalem. 
All right, so that leads us to the third one, idealists. The, they see the promise of spiritual protection in the midst of ongoing physical persecution. Right? Very similar to what the preterists see here, but it would be consistent with the way we've interpreted the first part of this passage as well. All right? Treating the entire section as symbolism. So rather than persecution being limited to AD 70, they see it as repeatedly occurring between the first and second coming of Christ. We also see the outer court, which is identified as the holy city, as simply an extension of the true people of God. Okay, so the difference is it's portrayed as a, a portion of the people of God that is susceptible to persecution, which which is what we see today, right? The church of God is both protected and persecuted. We're spiritually protected and preserved, but some have been martyred for their faith, right? So this persecution is very real. So I would say the the whole church is spiritually protected, though it may face physical persecution, So again, the outer court, even in the literal understanding of the temple here, the outer court was open to God-fearing Gentiles. It also contained courts of male and female Jews, as well as courts of priests were located in that outer court. So to interpret the whole outer court as a reference to unbelievers, I believe is actually out of accord with the facts. Um, It's out of accord with, with the temple, with the um, outer courts use throughout scripture and especially the parallel vision in Ezekiel that I think John is alluding to. So under the new covenant, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, we now worship God as a single covenant community. Everyone brought together as, as we were learning in Sunday school, grafted into one tree, right? We're, we're one people, one covenant community. And this community may suffer persecution, but God will preserve their faith. So then we got the the last section to understand here is the 42 months. What is is the 42 months indicating? I'm not going to go into every different view and what they believe here, but I would say the 42 months indicates a period of time in which the world's persecution is cut short by the will of God. This is the same length of time that you'll find in chapter 13, verse 5, speaking of the beast who utters blasphemies against against God and against his people. It's the same length of time that you'll find in chapter 12, verse 6, speaking of this woman who who flees to the wilderness and is protected and preserved by God in the wilderness for 1,260 days, which if you multiply 30... By 42, you get 1,260 days. So it's the same length of time. 42 months is 1,260 days. And it's also referred to as a time, times, and a half a time. Later on in chapter 12, verse 14, it says a time, times, and a half a time, which is a reference back to that same period of wilderness preservation for the church. Okay, so, so the idea is that all of these lengths of time are happening concurrently, the word we we also learned in Sunday school, right? It's happening at the same time. It's depicting this age where God is both preserving, feeding, and protecting his people while the enemy is in opposition to her, is constantly standing opposed to her growth and trying to bring defeat. 
Okay, so once again, the numbers in Revelation are symbolic of a principle. God will cut short the period of persecution at his appointed time, right, when Christ returns. He'll put an end to it. So conclusion, while, while persecution will bring physical harm upon the people of God, they will be protected spiritually. They may be martyred for their faith, but their physical death will never separate them from the love of God. That's precisely what, what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, right? Neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. So this is precisely what we would expect if we've been reading Revelation correctly, right? The, there's an example between the sixth and seventh seal of the church militant standing in battle array on earth, right, being prepared for the persecution that they're about to face. And then it shows this other vision at the same time of those who are reigning with Christ in heaven, who have been martyred or, or who have just died in the faith, who are now at, uh, in heaven with the Lord. And it's a picture of the church universal. And that interrupted the sixth and seventh seal. Well, now we have this portion, this passage of scripture, which interrupts the sixth and seventh trumpet that is essentially saying the same thing, right? It's a picture of the church preserved and protected by God in the midst of persecution. So how has God protected your faith through persecution or trials? Does, the, does this promise of his presence and his protection stir up your faith and give you a sense of confidence. And the truth is, every one of us desires this kind of comfort and confidence. Right? But many of us seek them in the wrong things. Right? We, what we find instead is this fleeting and temporary comfort and a, and a false confidence or a false hope. Maybe you've turned to alcohol or drugs and you now find yourself fighting an addiction that's only sinking you deeper into despair. Maybe it's, it's not so extreme, but are you seeking spiritual comfort from worldly objects? Maybe you turn more towards acceptable forms of distraction like food or entertainment. But now you feel as though the promises of God's word have lost their strength. Does the light of the TV have more appeal to you than the light of God's truth? These are difficult questions to ask, and they require some meditation. But understand where you typically go to seek comfort. Take time to think about that. And then ask yourself, how is this promise of God's presence and protection far superior to anything else that is offering you comfort? This passage is about the safety we have in being measured among God's people. And so it's vitally important that we understand how we can be numbered among the people of God. If, if God's protection is only promised to the people of God, then the implication is that there are many who are outside of his protection. And so here's the, the critical news that everyone needs to hear and heed. The people of God are never separated from the presence of God because the Son of God was separated from his Father as he bore the wrath of God upon the cross in their place. And that's the gospel message. 
that we will never be separated from God because his son was separated from him in our place. And so in light of that good news, the church has been given this prophetic task to proclaim, to be witnesses of that truth to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we will see next week as we consider the the rest of this portion of Scripture that nothing can thwart that mission. And just as the victory of Christ was accomplished through his apparent defeat on the cross, so the proclamation of the church will be successful as God preserves them through every trial and tribulation that they face. And that's our hope. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these promises. Lord, this has been a day of reminders about your promises to your covenant people. Even as we celebrated the sacrament of baptism, we see here in this passage of Scripture, once again, a promise of your presence with your people. Lord, we want to meditate upon that promise. We want to consider the impact of that promise to our lives. How has it affected us Does it cause us to be encouraged? Do we find comfort there? Do we find confidence and hope for the future? Do we face our trials and tribulation with that on our hearts? Lord, remind us of these things and prepare us because the days are coming where we will face challenge and trial of every kind. Lord, whether whether it'll be physical persecution from those who are opposed to your will, as as many in the church do face around the world, or whether it be something more subtle, something that's just as sinister and just as evil, however, that draws us away from you. Lord, help us to be reminded of your presence. Help us to be reminded of your promise and to cling to that with every, every hope. And knowing that it is in Christ that we have been redeemed. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.